When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTagg. And I'm Helen Thompson. Each week we look at the big story of the week and ask how we got here and what that means for the future. This week we're looking at the future of the Conservative Party and the very idea of there being a distinctly Conservative Party and a broadly liberal age odds with the idea of established tradition. Today the Conservative Party is in trouble. After 13 years in power, the party looks on course for defeat at the next election. Since David Cameron's surprise victory in 2015, the Conservative Party has been through five Prime Ministers, each apparently incapable of uniting the party behind an idea of what the Conservative Party is for, what it exists to conserve, and in the case of Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, perhaps how to appeal to enough voters to win an election. Attempting to fill the void, not only here in the UK, but in the US and beyond, is a new movement calling itself National Conservatism which believes the alliance between conservatives and free market liberals, which triumphed in the Cold War, actually ended with a triumph for liberalism itself over conservatism. This is a cold, valueless, unrooted liberalism, destroying all that conservatives hold dear. Institutions, culture, family, religion, even the nation-state itself. This movement, the National Conservative Movement, is holding its first conference in Britain this week, NatCon UK taking place just around the corner from the unheard studio here in London. And it's notable how many leading Conservatives will be in attendance. Suella Breverman, Michael Gove, Jacob Rees-Mogg, David Frost, Miriam Coates, Danny Kruger. In fact, we had one of the leaders of this movement, Yoram Hazoni, at the Unheard Club here in London to explain this new movement. Let's talk about whether national conservatism has a place in the UK and whether now is the moment. I'll begin with the obvious question, what is national conservatism? The simplest answer is that it's the opposite of liberal internationalism. This phrase, national conservatism, it does pop up every 50 or 100 years in Anglo-American history. It has some precedence. Many people feel that there is actually some kind of important, constructive good that is achieved by the fact that there are different nations, that there are borders between them, that they have different legal systems, they have different values, and that each one pursues 
its own interests on the basis of its own traditions, its own way of understanding them. See, in this way, national conservatism might seem an agenda for an ideological transformation of the Conservative Party that wouldn't do the kind of conservatism that Margaret Thatcher created. What we wanted to ask this week is whether we might be witnessing such a moment of transformation in conservatism all over again and what that might mean for the Conservative Party and the country. What is the Conservative Party transforming into? To answer these questions, we're going to start with the history of the Conservative Party, including how there was so little agreement about what that history actually is, when it began, and who was responsible for creating the Conservative Party we now know. This is the party that Disraeli made. Hunters died a hundred years ago this year. It took him 30 years to make it. You have got it. I pray you, pray you, beg you to conserve it, to preserve it, and to extend it. For this is the theme, the only theme, that makes parties honourable. Not mere efforts to grab power, but honourable combinations of people, such as in these clubs, and in many other organizations who work together to do what they honestly believe to be good work, not just for themselves or even for the whole of this country, but for the whole civilized world. That, of course, was Harold Macmillan talking about the history of the Conservative Party and calling it the Party of Disraeli. But I'm not sure it is the Party of Disraeli or least it's disputed. Disraeli himself talked about the party existing for 150 years before he came along. What do you think, Helen? This is a pretty complicated question and we need to revisit some past history, I think, to unpack it. The moment when we can say there is a distinctively conservative party that we would recognise in some sense in its organisational form was from 1834. But the founder of that party wouldn't be Disraeli, it would be Robert Peel. Right. Prior to 1834, there had been the Tory party. That had really formed, perhaps not quite as a party in the sense that we would understand it, but as an organised faction in English politics in response to the crisis of 1688 and James II's position as a Catholic on the English throne and then the Glorious Revolution. And that party had come to be a minority party, an opposition yeah, party. Yeah, a permanent opposition. A permanent, yeah. really, opposition party. Some interludes, but even the point when there are people who then get described as Tories, say, like Pitt the Younger, you might as well perhaps just describe them as a conservative Whig yeah. rather than an actual Tory. But there was something, I think, that could be called Tory government in the 1820s. But it was a party that was fundamentally divided by a set of issues about reform. Most consequentially, I would say, initially anyway, Catholic emancipation in 1829 that really led to the split of that party into what were called liberal Tories. But the, the people who left over Catholic emancipation were ultra-Tory. Yeah. And then that conflict about what kind of reform was desirable and to some extent inevitable really came together again in 1832 over the question of reforming the, the franchise. And a Tory like Robert Peel was quite strongly opposed to the 1832 Reform Act. And what we see after that, when the Reform Act passed, 
after supported strongly by the, the Whigs and a big confrontation between the House of Commons and the Lords, was that Peel set out what he saw as a necessity for accepting the 1832 Act as a permanent settlement of the constitutional question. So that from that point on, he wanted to say, look, this is given part now of the established order, even though we opposed we opposed it, it yeah. and I in particular opposed it. What we're going to be now is a force of moderation and in some sense a force for defending the new established order that would include this reform but wasn't in Peel's mind going to go any further than that and certainly if there was going to be reform then it had to be moderate and the emphasis had to be on preserving what was good in the past rather than any kind of modernising. This is the Tamworth manifesto isn't it so this is Peel essentially saying this far and no further and from that moment on he creates the Conservative Party. That's the the founding of what we now know as a Conservative Party. But the interesting thing here is really the opposition is led by Disraeli, who's now seen as the founder of One Nation Conservatism, which in our mind is a kind of moderate, centrist, liberal kind of conservatism. That's how it's used today. But Disraeli was an ultra at the time, or something approaching an ultra. He was a romantic, reactionary kind of Tory. He was of the old school and he criticised the Conservative Party and the very notion of conservatism. And that gets us back to this tension, I think, between Toryism and conservatism. Tory is a was a derogatory name originally that was then taken on by people called Tories. It meant an Irish papist outlaw and it was applied to those who supported the legitimate heir to the throne, James the Catholic. And that, so it was thrown at them and then they adopted it. And Israeli is saying about conservatism, I'm not a conservative. You don't, what are you seeking to conserve if you just accept change whenever it comes at you? I'm a Tory. I believe in a certain set of values and principles. And I think you see that tension all the way through from that point on. Yeah, I think that what's important here to see is what then happened to that party that Peel created. Yeah. Because it would divide bitterly in 1846 over the repeal of the Corn Laws when Peel was Prime Minister. And that brought Peel and Disraeli into a really profound conflict again because effectively Disraeli was organising the opposition among Conservatives to what Peel was doing. And I think that what you can see in Disraeli's positioning on that issue is him wanting to say, look, the Conservative Party is boast in some sense to defend the established order that includes the landed interest in the country, that the position of landed interests was embedded in the constitutional settlement and that the Conservatives had one office in 1841 um, promising to protect the agricultural interest and not being on the side of the the free traders. And then when the crisis of 1846 came, what Peel did was to rip up that promise and do something that Disraeli was exactly what the Whigs would have done. Essentially supporting free trade. He he brings in free trade and Disraeli opposes it. I sometimes see him as a kind of, like a Spartan, like a Brexit ultra, battling against the party leaders, a kind of Peel being a kind of Cameron figure or a, or a May figure, 
And Disraeli being this radical leader or agitator on the back benches, the leader, I think, was Bentnick at the time. But Disraeli was the genius in that party, wasn't he, at the time? What's left is really a kind of rump conservative party. The repeal of the Corn Laws leads to a period of, like, weak ascendancy. There isn't going to be a majority conservative government again until 1870. Yeah, we should say what happened here. So the party split. Peel didn't actually give up the leadership of his new conservative party, but it just became a a, a tiny uh, group in Parliament. And Bentnick and Disraeli inherited the vast bulk of it, but weren't sure what to call it. It was the majority of the Conservative Party, and they debated calling it the Protectionist Party or the Country Party. For those people who assume that conservatism naturally means free market economics, it doesn't from its founding. No, I think that what we can see in what Disraeli does, at least initially, is to, in some sense, turn the Conservative Party back to being the Country Party against the court, which is what it had been in the 18th century, and that the court is now being increasingly run with much greater concern for manufacturing interest for the urban poor, and Disraeli is essentially positioning the Conservatives as still defending the landed interest. Now, what happens when Disraeli becomes Prime Minister himself, so when the Conservatives are back in power, which is 1870 is a whole other matter. And I think that's the period when we can start to talk about something that looks like national conservatism, where Disraeli has an idea, a set of ideas about how the Conservative Party can adjust to reform, not just position itself as Peel had initially done, which is to say, we're we're only on the side of these reforms when we actually absolutely have to be. Because in some sense, his critique of... Peel, that Peel didn't actually want to conserve anything, is vindicated, I think, by what happened in 1840. Yeah. Because he wasn't prepared to conserve the interests of the, the landed class. He jumped to the next set of reforms and said, yes, we need, we need to do this. But that wasn't the basis in which the Conservatives could be a governing party. No, this is the interesting point, isn't it? Disraeli inherits or, or creates, through this uh, rebellion the Conservative Party that exists today, but he doesn't know what to do with it because if he keeps it as it is, he's in permanent opposition, rather like it was before. They're romantic and they're looking back to an old order and they're trying to recreate something that has gone, but they don't have a way of attaining power. And that's his conundrum. And I think that's what Macmillan is talking about when he's talking about it took him 30 years to create the modern Conservative Party because then he goes on a journey trying to get to a position in which he can win power. And I, I think to get a sense of Disraeli's character and his flair, you can read in his novel Coningsby, he tries to, he describes Robert Peel's version of conservatism as he sees it. And it goes like this. Whenever public opinion, which this party never attempts to form, to educate or to lead, falls into some violent perplexity, passion or caprice, this party yields without a struggle to the impulse. And when the storm has passed, attempts to obstruct and obviate the logical and ultimately the inevitable results of the very measures they have themselves originated or to which they have consented. And so he's saying that the Conservative Party just accepts whatever the latest reform is from somebody else and then fights to the bitter end as the inevitable conclusions of that reform. 
happen. I love that quote so much because I just, I, I, I see the Conservative Party today struggling with the reality of its own decisions that it has made or or somebody or, or reforms that it, is, it, is it, it has accepted. I, I just think Disraeli's getting at something about conservatism as a as an idea if it is only to conserve what you have inherited if it's not based on something more than that a, an idea of what society should look like yeah i think what he realizes by the 1860s at least is though that reform can be used to the conservatives right. advantage yes and that's what i think changes the conservative party from being a country opposition party again yep. to being ultimately the power orientated fairly effective vote winning machine that it will be certainly from the 18 late 1880s onwards and i think that the thing that disraeli did um, that was in some sense a political genius so you might say it was also just observing carefully what was going on around him <laughs> Um, maybe a bit of both was to think that the Conservative Party could be a cross-class party that as the franchise was getting extended to more and more men who were poorer yeah then the Conservative Party didn't have to give up on those votes this is the this is the genius they could actually fight for them it might actually be in some ways at some advantage to the Liberals in winning those votes yeah we should just say he opposes the first extension of the franchise and this is what he is criticizing of peel and then he becomes the author of the second extension of the franchise because he comes to understand that extending it to the poorer voters could actually benefit the conservative party that there was something that could connect i think he calls it like the monarch and the multitude it can connect the aristocracy to the not the working class as we describe them now but to the poorer classes at least he thought that both monarchy and empire were part of that if you think back to what we were talking about in the coronation yeah the first coronation episode that we did making victoria empress of india he did think i think that there was a certain kind of patriotism yeah. that could be generated by a stronger identification with empire and binding the monarchy uh, to that. I think, though, that what is particularly interesting about what his successor, or his most important successor anyway, Lord Salisbury, does with that, is that he really sees the opportunity that the union question, particularly the Irish aspect, obviously, of the union question, offers to the Conservatives. Because I think that Disraeli was always talking about the English nation when he talked about... He, he uses English. He uses England yeah. all, the all the time, time yeah. including in describing his sort of political project, his early political project as young. Young England. He even uses England when he goes to Edinburgh. <laughs> he gives a speech. He says England, doesn't he? It's, um, it's, a, it's a fascinating how that's changed. Yeah, but he doesn't actually, I think play or perhaps even need to play the politics of the union to the Conservative Party's advantage in the way in which Salisbury would and does goes on to do. And that is because at a certain point the Liberal Party under Gladstone 
decide that the only way of dealing with the Irish question, or at least Gladstone decides the only way of dealing with the Irish question is home rule yeah. or Ireland, without really any idea about how to deal with the constitutional implications of that, including really an Irish version of the West Lothian question, so where that would leave the governance of England in a situation in which there were quite a lot of Irish MPs, indeed disproportionate number yeah. in terms of the relative sizes of population. And I think what Salisbury does is without having any of Disraeli's flair for the National Conservatism project and indeed having a much more distrustful attitude, I think, towards the lower classes than what Disraeli (laughs) did, not only because he was an aristocrat, is he adds on to the mix for the Conservative Party that the Conservative Party is the National Party of England and although the Liberal Party splits over this question, that the Liberal Party becomes more identified with the Home Rule uh, cause. And when the Labour Party comes about, it starts from a position of Home Rule all round. The Conservatives get themselves into this position of defending the English national interest. Now, I think between 1910 and 1914, that leads them down into some really very fraught and difficult road for themselves in terms of what's going on in Ireland at the time, but I think that element of national conservatism, if we go back to that, has to be understood in the British context, in the context of the complexity of our multinational yeah. union and the way that impacts on electoral competition. I think Disraeli's project really is, is something that we would now call Tory democracy, and it's this alliance between the, the upper and the working classes with a big proportion of the middle classes who are who are happy with the reforms but don't want them to go much further. They they are spooked by sort of Gladstonian radicalism. And at the core of it is this idea of patriotism and the Conservative Party under Disraeli, and I think really it's been a potent weapon ever since, is the National Party. That is how they present themselves, and it's been potent against, we see it all the way up to today, defining themselves as the patriotic national party opposed to Ed Miliband's Labour Party, who would be in the pocket of Nicola Sturgeon, or, or Jeremy Corbyn, who's unpatriotic. You see it over and over again. You saw it um, with Thatcher and Michael Foote. You saw it with Churchill, Millen. It's a constant thing, and I think that you can trace that all the way back to Disraeli. But what else does it mean? What else does it mean? What is Disraelite conservatism? I, I came across a punch cartoon in 1872, which I thought was wonderful, and it features Disraeli being asked to define his conservative program for government. And he responds, Ah, yes, quite tell them that we propose to rely on the sublime instincts of an ancient people. And I thought, I couldn't read that without thinking of Boris Johnson. And thought, that's it, right? I texted a, a conservative MP before this episode and said, can you define what the, what's the core thing about conservative philosophy? And he, and he replied, trust the people. And that's it. So from Disraeli, uh, I think it was Randolph Churchill had that, trust the people as his strap line or his baseline, his, his idea. Churchill has an element of that Tory democracy and it goes all the way through Macmillan to today. Yeah, I think though the, the, the thing that Disraeli couldn't get to grips with is a question of what the Conservative Party was supposed to be conserving. Yeah. And this is where I think actually one can go back and make an argument that says that Peel does deserve his place, <laughs> perhaps as the founder of the Conservative Party, because right. what 
Peel did was to set the Conservative Party up as a essentially an, a pragmatic, an attempt anyway, to be a pragmatic moderating force against whatever else is going on around it. So that it's always reactive. It doesn't actually have a positive vision of the future. Now, Disraeli's critique, as we've been saying, of Peel was that he's not wanting actually to conserve anything, yeah. even though he says that he is. So he says it at one point that we ask what people want to conserve and he says things are only names, realities or merely appearances. Yeah. And obviously Disraeli's saying, look, it's only conservatism, meaning the conserve bit of that in name. But if you look at what he does as Prime Minister, it's exactly <laughs> the same because when it gets to... That's the, why people, some people dislike him. Yeah. They see him as just a charlatan, as a Boris figure, as somebody who can't be trusted, no principles, will say anything to win the party and then drag them back in the same direction. But I don't I think, think that goes fair. a lot deeper than that. I think it's that caricature of Disraeli is, is pretty unfair. Yeah. But I think what is true is that if you look at the 1870s, when there's an, basically an agricultural depression that hits uh, and other countries, other states are moving towards agricultural protectionism and away from free trade, Disraeli's prime minister... Which is what we're seeing now. ...at the time... And he doesn't do anything to protect the agricultural yeah. interest yeah. in the country. It's at least as big a crisis probably as the 1846, if you leave the Irish, it's not even if you leave the Irish dimension out um, of it. And Disraeli acts exactly as Peel <laughs> did. And I think that's because you can't actually undo, one, you can't actually undo Britain moving away from being an agricultural country to being an industrial country with a much larger population that's become dependent upon imported food if that food is going to be cheap enough for the um, urban poor. So it's a reality that he has to yeah. adjust to. He wants constantly to frame what's being conserved around constitutional questions, but that's only part politics. And even then, I'm not entirely convinced that he's really any different from uh, yeah. uh, Peel because he 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 doesn't try to undo the separation of the Church of Ireland and the Church of England, the disestablishment of the Church of Ireland that, that Gladstone had presided over. When he comes to power in the 1870s, he accommodates that yeah. change to the Constitution. So the things that are supposed to be the established constitutional order post-1832 that are in danger of being eroded the way, Disraeli doesn't really do much to defend them. Honestly, it just feels like today, it's like we're talking about today and the protectionism that is happening all over the world and what we're going to do to respond to it and the kind of romantic ideas of turning back the clock or protecting the constitution but then having to accept that the economy is not what it was. I feel like I'm just witnessing a repeat. I think Disraeli had this answer to the question of about conservation, which I think is interesting. Probably we can finish this half of the episode on it. He says, the great question is not whether you should resist change, which is inevitable, but whether that change should be carried out in deference to the manners, the customs, the laws and the traditions of a people, or whether it should be carried out in deference to abstract principles. The one is a national system and the other is a philosophical system. And he then says, we are the party of the national system and the others, the liberals and then in future, the Labour Party, the philosophical party and i think that hasn't ever changed 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In many ways, American politics, they are very different because you have two parties based on a free society. We have one party based on that. For years now in British politics, this word consensus has reared its head. You must have a consensus. The word, again, you used not to use when I first came in politics. We had convictions. And we tried to persuade people that our convictions were the right ones. And it's no earthly good having convictions unless you have the will to translate those convictions into action. But politics was more if you had convictions. I often think when you're going for consensus that those who believe as I believe tend to give in to the left wing and who steadily move further and further left. Well, that was, of course, Margaret Thatcher. And I think it's wonderful how it just gets at the same tension, Helen, that we've been talking about between Disraeli and Peel, the idea of conviction and consensus and what do you actually believe? What are you trying to do? And in that clip, that just sounds like a Disraeli kind of ultra. Yeah, I think that she was very keen on the idea of positioning herself as a conviction politician, that she had principles and that other people in the Conservative Party, the wets, who yeah. were her <clears throat> principal opposition within the Conservative Party when she first became Prime Minister, didn't have convictions that they were willing to accept the terms on which Labour had governed. I think actually she was a much more canny politician. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the part of the canniness was to realise that there was value in presenting herself as a conviction politician and the Conservative Party standing for a set of principles, whilst in practice being much, much more pragmatic than that. And trying, though, to grapple with that same problem of... What did the Conservative Party do in the face of what had become a political order in the 1970s? As she saw it, I think probably rightly in this respect, to its disadvantage, because it looked like the reforms had got to the point where in order to govern, it was necessary to cooperate with the trade unions. And even the Labour Party found that extremely difficult by the end of the 70s, hence the winter of discontent and the circumstances that led, or at least in part, led to the fall of the J- James Callaghan's government. But I think that at the centre of Thatcher's project was a question of what does the Conservative Party have to do to govern competently yeah. in an age which isn't particularly friendly to the Conservative Party? And her response was, let's in some sense undo certain things that happened in the 60s and the 70s. In particular, let's try to take 
but is politics back to ground that is safer in some sense for the Conservative Party than where things had ended up in the 70s? Yeah, because she was coming off a period of consensus when you'd had the Labour government that come in after the Second World War and had had brought in the welfare state and the NHS and all of these things, which were then accepted by the Conservative Party, just as Peel had said, "Okay, we accept the reforms this far and no further. Something like that had happened and we'd had that consensus to some extent. And Thatcher seeks to unpick it. From that point on, she's always been criticised as you weren't a conservative, really. You were a radical or or even a liberal. Or some people would say she's a Whig because she believes in free trade. And that inherently destructive concept, isn't it? It destroys certain industries. It builds certain new industries. It creates a, a tension, an economic tension. And she embraces that. And it was an international free trade, international capitalism, which is the thing that Disraeli came to prominence opposing. But it's not, I don't think it's fair to say that she's a a liberal. I don't think it's correct, rather, to say she's a liberal. She's not. She's a Tory. Yeah, I think that's quite a complicated question. I think that we have to separate out it probably into different parts. I think that the thing that she did that was really radical was very early on get rid of all the capital controls that yeah. had been put in place where we really stayed in place from the through the Second World War into the post-war uh, era. So that opened up the British economy financially. Now, in one sense, you could say that was going back. It was going back to an earlier era in the world economy and that uh, this period from, let's say, 1945 through to the 1970s was a strange interlude Mm. in which states actually tried to, or at least European states, tried to control, many states tried to control the flow of uh, capital. Build a national economy. Absolutely, with that idea that you could build a national economy and that the national economy wouldn't be knocked about by international financial flows. And I think any idea of a national political project, whether that be national social democracy or national conservatism, in the 20th century is going to grapple with that question and whether it's possible to have such national projects right, yeah. in an internationalised financial world. I think, though, the point where you can say you can see her conservative with instincts is the set of constitutional questions with one big caveat. A huge caveat. Yeah, with the... Yeah. <laughs> is that if you think of the 70s as a period in which first Heath and then the Labour government have gone about a constitutional modernisation project of different kinds, whether that be county council changes of Heath or the devolution proposals of the Labour government, Thatcher goes back to, particularly on the devolution, a kind of established constitutional order the United Kingdom, leaving the Northern Irish question out of it as a unitary state. Now, that's a lot harder to do mm. than it would be for Macmillan back in the 50s because once Scottish nationalism and Welsh nationalism in play from the 70s, they don't just go... They don't go away, yeah. They don't, they don't go away. But I think that she wanted to say, no, we need to go back to something where we've got a more unitary state and that it constitutionally hangs together. It but it, it, it's hard 
for there not to be negative consequences for the Conservative Party for that. But the big thing, the big caveat is obviously European Union. Yeah, and in some senses, she was a sort of moderate power light who accepted his arguments on monetarism and economic liberalism and constitutionally within the UK, opposed to devolution. But where she kept quiet, cannily, as we might say, is on the question of Europe, where she accepted that. I think she was always instinctively Eurosceptic, but she was prepared to go ahead. And then you get to this tension between the economics and the constitutional question, and what are you conserving? And her, I think her fundamental... Her fundamental concern was the British economy, and she felt that Europe was a way to improve the British economy, and that, at the time, was prioritised over the constitutional questions, which, of course, for Enoch Powell and others, was not. There is more differences between old Toryism, which maybe Powell might reflect, or he might be the embodiment of this romantic, reactionary kind of looking back, preserving an idea of the British constitution and Thatcherism, which is a bit distinctive. And there's there's a moment I came across, it was at the something called the Conservative Philosophy Group, which had emerged in the in the seventies and came to prominence in the eighties, which is a meeting group of Tory ultras in a way. And Thatcher, after she became leader, would attend this and they would have these dinner parties and discuss conservative values, what it means to be a conservative. This emerged out of a frustration at the status quo and how much they had compromised and they wanted to try and find an idea of what they actually believed in. And they were having a discussion about Western values. And Thatcher said that the atomic bomb was necessary to defend Western values. And Edot Powell replied, no, we do not fight for values. I would fight for this country even if we had a communist government. And this sort of baffled Thatcher And she was like, nonsense, Enoch. If I send British troops abroad, and this was before the Falklands, it will be to defend our values. And Powell replies, no, Prime Minister, values exist in a transcendental realm beyond space and time. They can neither neither be fought for nor destroyed. You can imagine Thatcher's face as he's (laughs) saying this. But I think John Casey, a professor at Cambridge, has written, Thatcher had just been presented with the difference between what he saw as British Toryism which is essentially defending something based on land and the nation, and what he calls a sort of American republicanism, which is based on more on ideals and what Disraeli would dismiss as abstract ideals, right? So I think there is a tension in Thatcher between her belief in these abstract ideas of free markets and uh, liberty and being a Cold War warrior and an old form of romantic Toryism. And I think that tension really does, it exists within her. I don't think there is a clear answer to which side is prioritised. No, I think that's true. But I think it's also true that in practical terms that she does find a way of holding on to something of Disraeli's idea of a national Conservative Party in the sense of it being a cross-class coalition. Absolutely, yeah. And if you go back to the 1979 manifesto so the first manifesto that was offered to the British public under Thatcher's leadership of the Conservative Party is very much framed around the language of the national interest Mm. and against what's presented as selfish factionalism aligning the trade unions in particular but to some extent the Labour Party up with this selfish factionalism and I think if you look at 
some of those policies in the manifesto of 1979 that were, I think, quite important in winning certain kinds of voters over to the Conservative Party, like the promise of people who had living in council houses being able to build, to buy their own homes. That was very much in the spirit of the Israelis' cross-class coalition. Yeah. The Conservative Party under Thatcher didn't just win because it appealed either to the language of values in the Cold War, though the Cold War, Labour's positioning on the Cold War certainly helped them by 1983-1987, nor did it just appeal to economic liberals who didn't like the state being so interventionist. It, it offered something. It was patriotic in a way. But also it was just it had a material programme that went hand in hand with an idea of what a cross-class coalition for the Conservative Party could be. And I think that's a lot less clear by the end of the decade that the Conservative Party can carry on doing that and that it's not really, I think, possible for John Major to take that part of the uh, of Thatcher's approach and replicate it through the 1990s. But I think it's quite hard to see how Thatcher initially succeeds without offering something in that national conservative space. But what makes it a lot easier for her is that the Labour Party in the 1980s on the foreign policy questions moves off into this position of unilateral nuclear disarmament, implicitly anti-NATO. And I think then there are certain parallels between the Conservatives in the Disraeli Salisbury period, the Conservatives perhaps even in the 1920s, when they have a foreign policy advantage. Yeah. They lose it, obviously, in the 1930s because the Conservative Party in the 1930s becomes tied up with appeasement. And if you then say, what are some big moments of defeat for the Conservative Party in this story? One would be what happened in 1940, which lays the foundations for Labour being the post-war government. Even going back to that period of um, opposition in the 19th century, when they were they couldn't get near government and they were a permanent opposition. Palmerston, nobody could question his patriotism, so it was a they couldn't really play that card. But it's since Disraeli has, has turned them into this national party that it's been so potent and in some senses unfair, unfairly. Uh, even Michael Foote in the 1980s, who suffers terribly from the Conservative Party weaponizing this image of themselves as the National Party. It's unfair. Michael Foote was an extraordinarily patriotic man. He'd written The Guilty Men, charging the Conservatives with being unpatriotic, really, in, in, before the Second World War, and was a tremendous figure during the Falklands War crisis. But he, they can't cope with it. The Conservative Party, it is its most potent weapon, and it still is. But, but what, the other thing that really I think is interesting is that we our concept of one nation conservatism which is bound up in both being patriotic and being cross-class and uniting the rich and the poor against sectional interests is now assumed to be as we talked about earlier a kind of centrist liberal conservatism but that's not really its tradition it's been the core of a conservative election victories 
since Disraeli through Macmillan with house building and all of and all of that. And he was he was certainly the centrist, but it's the same with Thatcher. And then I think if you were to think who is closer to Disraeliite sort of national conservatism, it would in recent prime ministers it would be Boris Johnson and Theresa Ray rather than David Cameron. Yeah, I think that we should bring Cameron into this story yeah. because I think what's interesting about his leadership was that pretty much from the moment that he became party leader, he had this idea that the Conservative Party needed to be modernised yeah. and that his idea really, I would suggest, of modernising the Conservative Party was to not have it be such a cross-class <laughs> yeah. coalition, that there was an element of let's take working class conservatism out of the party because that's toxic. Yeah, they're the free cakes and the loonies. Yeah, right. and that we don't want that. He wanted the party to be socially liberal. So if we go back to our like accommodating change that you do, some people in the party at least might not necessarily like, absolutely that's what he wanted to do. It wasn't in his case doing something that, that he disliked. Yeah. But he knew perfectly well there were people in the party who who didn't want it to become such a socially liberal party, um, as it became uh, under his um, leadership. And I think that it's quite striking the political difficulties that Cameron had in trying to muster a coalition that could get to forty percent of the vote. Yeah, right. but he got he, no he way never did. Yeah, and the only thing that gave the Conservatives really that majority under his leadership in 2015 was the ability to be the English party yep. in a politics in which the multinational union, because of the Scottish referendum in 2014, had very much come to the fore. And that was back in a way, I would suggest, to a Lord Salisbury way of doing things. It's not patriotism as such. It's, it's recognising that under any kind of constitutional change in which essentially either the proposal is to leave England without any distinctive form of governance or where the change has actually taken place as now and England doesn't have any distinctive form of governance that the Conservatives can exploit that. I mean, I think actually that is part of the story of the Thatcher winning in the Conservatives winning under Thatcher in 1979 yeah. that they do disproportionately well in England after an election that has been precipitated by the failure of the referendum and devolution in Scotland and the SNP withdrawing its support for the Labour Party. I think the difficulty, though, for the Conservatives is, is they don't really know what to do with this in the same way in which they didn't really know what to do with Brexit. Because in that sense, they were forced, I think, largely by circumstances or Cameron was forced largely by circumstances to revisit that constitutional question of EU membership, found that there was some lingering insistence of the old constitutional yeah. tradition from before EU membership that actually was coming back to the, the surface. Historically, that should have suited the Conservatives in the sense, OK, we stand for a national constitutional tradition, but Cameron's Conservative Party, and indeed you could argue his successors don't really know how to be that kind of... Isn't there, a, isn't there an irony here, Helen, that in a sense it's the Labour Party that are acting as the traditional Conservative Party right now. They're saying there has been a reform, we didn't agree with it, but we accept it. 
but this line and no further, and the other party are the danger. They're too radical. They're going to carry on doing all these reforms. They're going to keep going, and you can't trust them. Trust us, we'll put this to bed and we'll stop it. You don't need to worry. That's a very Peelite position, and then eventually Disraeliite position. And they may win a sort of powerful majority of uniting across the classes and and actually and doing something the Conservative Party can't do very well, which is to also win in Scotland and Wales. The Conservative Party are, are withdrawing to a, a, a core vote. And we, we had this discussion at the Unheard Club the other day about the future of conservatism and we were talking about the different coalitions that are available to them. And I conclude really, what is the alternative to trying to get that coalition that Theresa May was trying to get and Boris Johnson succeeding at getting that. What is the alternative? Is it you can't surely you can't go back to David Cameron strategy to win the liberal urban middle classes and think that's going to get you above forty percent, which is what you need now. No, I, I think there isn't really any alternative for the Conservative Party but to pursue the strategy that Boris Johnson was trying to pursue or perhaps it was only a set of tactics but do it without all the problems that Boris Johnson as a personality brought to bear to the issue. I think the problem though is that there was no appetite in the Conservative Party itself, the Parliamentary Conservative Party perhaps in particular, for what Johnson wanted to do. They were quite happy to take the benefits of it, i.e. a majority winning people seats who might otherwise not have won seats. But you could see how hollow that version of the Conservative Party was when it came to the initial election for Boris Johnson's successor. So the one last summer, it seems, yeah. totally last summer, go, yeah. in which the final round was between Sunak and Liz Truss. And all the talk about levelling up and that part of the... <laughs> Conservative Party commitments in 2019, without which no one would have been Prime Minister from the Conservative Party, was just missing. Yeah. Liz Truss must be the most alien Tory party leader that they have had in their history, in terms of being the most out there on her ideas, the most unconnected to the roots of the Tory idea. In a way, absolutely. I think that she's... a uh, an outlier. On the other hand, I think she was also just a symptom mm. of what's happened to the the parliamentary Conservative Party. Is it's not clear what understanding most people in the parliamentary Conservative Party have of what the Conservative Party can be, or they're at ease with the things that it would need to be in order to be a successful party beyond what happened at the 2019 general election. You can see that what the Conservative Party needs to do... Yeah, it's is, simple what it needs to do. ...is to replicate that without all the collateral damage that Boris Johnson brought to proceedings. But whether there are people in the party who can see how to do that in the incredibly difficult economic times in which we're living, in which it's not clear, for instance, like how that you would create a cross-class coalition around the home ownership issue, for instance, particularly when you've got to then think about really the conflict of interest in some sense between the generations where this is concerned. 
And I think that this gets us on then to this issue of whether there can be any kind of like national conservative project in a world in which the idea of a national project of any political persuasion runs into the internationalised world economy and the nature of the geopolitical competition that now increasingly dominates. Now, you might think that would be conducive yeah. to national projects, but that, at least economically, that competition is completely dominated, really, by the United States-China rivalry. Yeah, but I'm not sure there's any choice. That's the country we exist in. You know, it's the reality, isn't it? We have Brexited. That's an, a national project, if it's anything. Half the country or more now obviously don't believe in it, don't think it's a good idea. But that's that has happened, and making it function, making it work, is a that's the national strategy of a conservative government, or it should be, and it, alongside levelling up. But they gave up on the levelling up side, and Brexit descended into... It had to take a, a back seat when the pandemic happened. So it's very unclear, but, but I, I'm not sure they have any choice other than to try and find a way of having a national project. It has to be something to do with levelling up the country, making it wealthier outside of the southeast, giving its old, its traditional coalition of voters something to vote for, home ownership, or some a stake in the project itself. Otherwise, I think ultimately that's what Labour is doing. They're suggesting uh, massive green investment in parts of the country outside of the southeast. They seem to be on the side of renters and students and the middle classes. They are proposing something that you could imagine settles down the constitutional questions by aligning more closely to Europe, accept accepting the change, trying to rub out the frictions between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and dealing with the constitutional questions with Scotland and Wales. It does seem to me that the Conservative Party has quite a lot of thinking to do about how it's going to find something that it can all agree upon and is somehow electorally popular. Yeah, I think that's true. But I think that the constitutional questions are still in such flux right, yeah. that it's pretty difficult for either party to act in a coherent way now as a defender of the new constitutional order of this far and... There is no order. No further. <laughs> because, obviously, that was what Peel was trying to do, if we go back to where we started. that He said quite um, explicitly that the 1832 Act was supposed to settle a great constitutional question permanently. And, obviously, it did no such thing. Nothing and, ever does. And we think that... We can say that the Labour Party has accepted the post-Brexit constitutional order, but have the Scottish Nationalists, for instance, accepted the post-2014 referendum constitutional order of the Union? Can they? Yep. Can, the, a, can the DUP? Can the DUP? What do we yeah. do about the constitutional order if... Labour wins a majority at the next election, but it doesn't have a majority of English seats and then relies on yep. Scottish and Welsh votes to vote on laws that only apply in England. These are unsettled questions 
also living in an age in which the monarchy isn't an absolute given. And if that's mm. not an absolute given, then probably the position of the Church of England as an established church is not an absolute given either. Not These, the House of Lords. Yeah, the House of Lords. These were questions that were very much being played out in 1832, that there was an established order. That's what Disraeli said, at least in principle, that he wanted to be on the side of. And some bits of that established order have completely gone, but other bits of that established order are still there and being contested. And there will be future contests over that. And the question then of which is the party that is going to be in favour of conserving that is going to still be part of our politics, I think, even though it's not clear that the Conservative Party itself has got a strong idea of conservation as the point of its existence. Yeah, absolutely. On that, I think we should leave it. Good luck to the Conservative Party answering that question. See you next time. Thanks for listening to These Times and to all of you who have helped put the show in the top 10 most listened to news podcasts in the UK. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, here comes the usual plea to subscribe, share with your family and friends, leave a review, or just shout about it from the rooftops. If you have any questions, please do get in touch with us. You can email us at these times at unheard.com or tweet us at these times pod. Capital T for these, capital T for times, capital P for pod. And we'll try to answer your questions in a future episode.